Good morning. Welcome to the second legislative forum in a series of three being sponsored by the League of Women Voters, Johnson County, during the 2023 Iowa legislative session. My name is B. Hicks. I'm a member of the League of Women Voters of Johnson County, and I will be your moderator today. Our timekeeper today is Barbara Helmick, also a League member. The League is dedicated to educating voters on political and ballot issues. We encourage informed citizen participation in government. Membership is open to people of all genders, age 16 and older. We invite you to join us. We can use your time, your talent, and your financial support for our ongoing operations. To learn more, speak to one of our members. We have these blue shirts, lovely blue. Or reach out to us through our website or Facebook page, and that's www.lwvjc.org. These forums are designed to give local citizens an opportunity to discuss current state legislative issues with their elected officials while the legislative session is underway. All legislators were invited. Today's forum focuses on issues related to health care. I would like to introduce our legislators in order of seniority and alphabetically. At the end of the table, Jack Walls, District 43, Janice Weiner, District 45, Dave Jacoby, District 86, Amy Nielsen, District 85, Eleanor Levin, District 89, and Adam Zabner, District 90. Dan, Dawn Driscoll is unable to attend due to a family conflict. Heather Horn, Hora, and Brad Sherman did not respond to our invitation. We will start the forum with these with three-minute summaries from each of our legislators on recent legislative matters of interest to them individually, starting with Zach Walls, District 43. Well, thank you very much, B, and it's good to see everyone this morning. Uh, thank you all uh, to the League for hosting us and, and for facilitating these conversations. Obviously, continue to be very disappointed that our Republican colleagues choose not to attend these events and hope that uh, they're able to join us at some point in the future. Uh, in terms of legislation that's happening at the State House, we are approaching the first funnel, which is next Friday, and so we are keeping up a very, very busy pace at the State House. A couple of bills that I'll just talk about uh, in terms of legislation that has been moving that I'm, I'm keeping a close eye on. Uh, one of the, the bills that passed the Iowa Senate this past week was the implementation of trucker uh, liability caps, essentially saying that uh, for folks who are the victims of trucking uh, accidents involving a, an 18-wheeler or a large truck, um, or uh, frankly, any large commercial vehicle at this point, uh, there is now a government-mandated price on human life uh, that limits the amount of justice and, and damages, uh, non-economic damages for injured Iowans. Um, it capped uh, awards at $2 million uh, for non-economic damages. Uh, and I don't know about all of you, but last week uh, when I was driving home from Des Moines, I counted double-digit number of trucks that were in the ditch. Uh, had, frankly, several very close calls myself. 
Uh, one thing that I will say is that I don't think any trucker gets behind the, the wheel of an 18-wheeler with the intent to cause damage, uh, but the idea that you're going to put a, a limitation on the amount uh, of damages that a jury of our peers could find for people who are the victims of, of uh, these incidents I thought was, was reprehensible. Uh, Democrats offered several amendments trying to um, make the bill better. Uh, Republicans voted them down on party lines uh, for the most part. We had a couple of Republicans join us, uh, but a, a large majority of Republicans rejected uh, exceptions for things like gross negligence, hiring negligence, and, and other matters that we thought would have improved uh, the bill substantially. Uh, I was also very uh, disappointed to see that the Senate Judiciary Committee passed Senate File 14, which would revive the death penalty uh, in our state, which hasn't existed in Iowa for almost 60 years and hasn't been debated on the floor of the legislature for almost 30 years. So it's still a little too soon to say whether or not that will actually be called to the floor, but it is something that we're keeping a very close eye on. Uh, and then finally, and our, our House colleagues will talk about this, uh, I'm sure, as well, uh, but the governor's reorganization bill. Uh, which is in the Senate, Senate Study Bill 1123. Uh, it, it, folks, it's a power grab, plain and simple. Uh, this is a 1,600-page proposal that will hand her um, political cronies much more power. Uh, it will remove checks and balances, and it will uh, give the governor's office direct control uh, of, of substantially more uh, state government. Um, I, I want to be really clear that Democrats support int introducing legislation and proposals that will streamline government, make it more effective and more efficient. Uh, what we don't support is the governor uh, having more department heads serving purely at her pleasure, without independence, without terms, without uh, the need for a two-thirds vote for confirmation by the Senate. So there are a lot of concerns that we have with her proposal. This is not a Democrat-Republican concern. This is a legislative branch, executive branch concern. We need to have a government that has our checks and balances, that has uh, equal respect among the different branches of government. And so that's why we have some really big concerns about it. So with that, I'll turn it over to Senator Weiner. Janice Weiner, District 45. Thank you. Yeah, it is, it is sort of a wild and crazy time right now um, in, in the legislature as we approach the funnel. As Senator Wall said, there are there are enormous numbers of subcommittees, and this coming week is going to be filled with committee meetings. We'll see what bills get out of committee. Uh, he, the, Senator Walls mentioned the death penalty. I sat on that that committee meeting in the in the in the in the in um, judiciary, and I pointed out a couple of things. One is that this would put us in in great company with Saudi Arabia, North Korea, Iran, and China. Um, which is a huge embarrassment and was always an embarrassment when I was serving overseas in the Foreign Service that we actually in the United States still had death penalty. Um, and that 68%, fully 68% of death penalty cases contain errors. Um, I personally don't feel that, 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 that I or anyone else has the right to play God. So I hope it won't get to the floor, but if it does, we will certainly all speak against it. And hopefully some of the pro-life people will agree. <laughs> The, there's been a huge push of legislating hate in the legislature as well. You'll see the, the new Reagan shirt that I'm sporting now, don't legislate hate. Um, there, I think, do you know what we're up to? I think it's 19 bills that, um, that target the LGBTQ plus community and particularly trans kids for no reason at all other than they're an easy target. Uh, and it's a way to scapegoat and, and so fear and disinformation and so forth. And we need, we must push back against the hate. There's a, there's a raft of really bad voting bills that I'm also hoping will go no, nowhere. I sat in on one of the subcommittees. Most of them are authored by Senator Salmon and, and, and align with the big lie. 
Uh, I also tried to debunk some of that since I've been a poll worker and I can assure them that, that at, the end of, at the end of your shift, you open up the voting machine and the bipartisan team, as m many of you know, counts the number of ballots that are in that machine and they must align with the number of ballots that were handed out during the day as well as a variety of other issues. Um, so it's, uh, there are actually some good things going through as well. I mean, I've sat in on some positive subcommittees and we wrote out some good bills. Like there was a bill that I mentioned in my newsletter where we're, we're trying to make sure that uh, as Iowa seeks to expand broadband to rural areas that, it, that, it, that's, that its programs are eligible for federal funding. Uh, but there's, there's way too much crazy. I'll also mention um, one more and that's the child labor bill that's, uh, that made it through committee in, in the Senate. Um, I don't know if any of you read the New York Times this morning, but there is a, there's a huge expose on particularly immigrant child labor right now, which is a horror. Um, but this, um, they, the, the sponsors of this bill were, were thrilled at the notion of kids being able to work more hours in more places. Um, and, and I handed Senator Dotzler a copy of the Fair Labor Standards Act before he went into that subcommittee, which sets the floor. It means we have to do better or not do it at all, so there's many illegal things in there. So thank you, on to you. Next we'll have Dave Jacoby, District 85, six. <laughs> thank you, B. Wow, we're off to a good start. <laughs> well, sad to know the House is about the same as the Senate. Hey, just last night I got to watch a replay of our first uh, forum that we had, and it was, it was good to watch that. Uh, about a half hour in, I go, wow, my voice really sounds weird. So <laughs> at 66, I'm still not growing out of it. Uh, I, I'm Dave Jacoby. I serve on the House Ways and Means Committee. I'm the ranking member. I also serve on Commerce, Natural Resources, and this is my first year on government under oversight. <laughs> so it's been quite a start this year to government oversight. Uh, Without getting into the content of book banning and calling the hospital professionals in to talk about transgender treatments or anything else that we're working with families, I do have to comment, especially since the other team is not showing up to forums. One of the reasons they're not showing up, I will have to say, for the last two government oversight meetings, they were incredibly rude to presenters. They were rude to teachers. They were rude to school board members. They were rude to doctors. And what really made me mad <laughs> was how rude they were to a 16-year-old girl named Rebecca from Carlisle who came to testify. Mm -hmm. I mean, it is out of hand. You don't have to agree with someone, but I have to say if someone takes their time, and they're pretty nervous when they come to testify. And a 16-year-old student, I believe she's a junior, uh, there's no reason, no reason at all to show disrespect to a high school student. There are some good things going on. Uh, environmentally wise, working with Representative Eisenhart uh, on his amendment to help promote bees in Iowa. And everyone's saying, well, is that a big deal? Well, it kind of is a big deal. And as a matter of fact, there's a good chance that he will be able to put his amendment on another bill, especially with the help of one of our brand new leaders, Adam Zabner, who is 
much smoother than me and he's nicer to people. So I, I think he's gonna see more success than maybe I will. But I look forward to the questions today and seeing what you have to say and what you're hearing. Next, we'll have Amy Nielsen, District 85. Thank you. Uh, thank you to the League of Women Voters and for everybody showing up today. Um, yeah, it's been a heck of a week. We Most of my week has been taken up with the governor's reorganization bill, um, trying to fit three hours worth of questions into one hour um, <laughs> because that's all we're given uh, for the subcommittee times uh, for this bill. It's, 1600 page bill and we'll be spending roughly five hours um, working on it together with other Republicans and that's also the only time that the public can come and testify or ask questions or make any kind of comments um, so we've we've seen what I feel is quite a rush um, on this bill going through I, I understand that the governor's office is worried that they might be going too slow with this bill um, but here we are. Um, a couple other bills that I've been um, on committees for this past week um, is uh, ESG, which I had no idea what that was when I came in. Um, but um, basically, ESG is Environmental, Social, and Governance um, score that uh, financial institutions or financial managers look at when they're investing um, people's money. So, um, you know. We care about certain things um, as Democrats, environmental things, I think we can all agree on is something uh, that we care about. So if, if they see a company that's not necessarily uh, great for the environment, um, they don't, you know, they, they won't invest in the, they won't invest your money in those companies. And that's a choice that we all get to make because we all have the freedom and the market, we have a free market and the market really kind of sets the tone for these things, but, um, we had several um, companies come in and talk about how how horribly they've been treated because um, because of this ESG scoring. And so the Republicans' answer, of course, is to throw in their things that need to be um, considered when um, when investing. So you know you can't discriminate against um, firearms companies or timber companies or. Um, Oh, there's so there's so many of them, um, but it's basically just we don't like what you're doing, so we're going to do it too, um, which is uh, is fun. Um, I also was on uh, one of the big election bills. Um, there are a few things it does that are good. There's a lot of things it does that are not good. Um, hoping that we will be able to come up with some bipartisan um, solutions to make to make it better. Um, and yeah, there was a couple of good things that happened, but I can't remember what they were. <laughs> so <clears throat> I'll look into it, get back to you next month. <clears throat> next we'll have Eleanor Levin, District 89. Thank you, B. Good morning, folks. I'm so pleased to be here. Um, th this was a, a tough week. Um, I sit on a lot of committees that should be doing more good work. Um, I had a, a reasonably quiet week because so much time is being devoted and has to be and should be devoted to some of these enormous pieces of legislation that are being pushed through committees that I don't sit on. Um, and so what was sort of strange for me this week was that I had the opportunity to 
sit down and listen to a lot of presentations and hear from a lot of folks who have ideas for how we could make Iowa a better, more welcoming place. Um, Representative Eisenhart brought in a presentation about veterans community um, trust, or uh, the, sorry, the veterans community, um, oh, I'm gonna forget the exact name of the cult, but it's a group that essentially has had success in other states and in other communities building housing that has wraparound care and support services for veterans experiencing homelessness. This is an amazing program that some of us would really love to see brought to, to test out in Iowa and listening to that presentation and feeling so great about it and then knowing that at least this year, that's all we're gonna get to do is talk about it. Um, and then other, we had folks come to visit, including folks from this community, from uh, who are faith leaders in Iowa, coming to speak in support of LGBTQ Iowans and in support of abortion access in Iowa, and speaking to them both before they met with um, their representatives and afterwards, and hearing how that went for them was frustrating for me and disheartening for me. Um, but I also just wanted to mention that because I was so incredibly grateful for them taking the time and making the efforts to speak on those particular issues. Um, I also had the absolute honor of having a high school student from District 89 come shadow me for a day this week. Um, and hearing his questions as we went into committee meetings and as we heard from um, constituents and as we looked at bills were just wonderful and heartwarming, um, and I want us to do better for him and for the rest of Iowa's young folks. Um, I hope that some of the things that are coming out fast and furious never make it to the debate floor. There are other things that, you know, there are good bills that we're passing every week, small things that make little changes in industries and in people's lives. Um, but the, the, as we watch a bill come into the Public Safety Committee that would basically strip away the good that was done by the, I think it's the For the People. Plan the, for a More Perfect Plan for a More Perfect Union uh, Act from just, what, three years ago? Um, those, okay. those are really hard things to watch happen. So thank you all for being here. I look forward to your questions. Thank you. Adam Zabner. Hi, everyone. I'm Adam Zabner. I represent House District 90, north and east side of Iowa City. I'll start with three good things, uh, and then we can get into some of the bad from the week. Uh, we introduced legislation I'm a co-sponsor on this week to legalize marijuana. That's been a really big priority for our Democratic caucus in the House. Um, I'm excited about that. Um, I'm really proud to be working with Representative Levin um, on legislation that has 30 co-sponsors to codify marriage equality. Uh, the Iowa Supreme Court has ruled that uh, marriage equality is the law of the land, but our code still doesn't reflect that, and it needs to. Um, the third good thing is a couple weeks ago, I had the opportunity to serve on a subcommittee for a bill that would have Iowa join the Interstate Rail Compact um, so that we can bring some of these federal funds around Amtrak and uh, hopefully get that, finally get that line from Chicago to Davenport to Iowa City. Um, passed out a subcommittee three to zero. Um, really hopeful that we can, we can see it in committee and on the floor at some point. Um, there also was, was some really bad stuff. 
Um, I'm really thankful to Representative Nielsen. We serve on the subcommittee for this big state government reorganization bill together. Um, you know, there's a lot in that bill, but I want to focus on one thing that I think really indicates the problem with how it was written. Um, this bill, one of the things it does is it takes the Department of the Blind, which is currently uh, has its policy and director set by a three-person commission that includes two blind folks um, and moves all the power into the governor's office. Um, we had about 30 uh, members of the blind community come in to testify on, on Wednesday. Um, we had so many different parts of the bill on the docket for that day that by the time we got to them, there was about 10 minutes left. Um, only three of them had the opportunity to speak. They had to come back the next day. Um, and you know, it's a big commitment to come during a work day. Um, and they spoke about Iowa's nation-leading Department for the Blind, all the wonderful things it has done, and the importance of having blind folks in control of the department and independence from political retaliation from the governor for this department. Um, and the really frustrating thing to me was after all that testimony, I had the opportunity to ask uh, the governor's legislative liaison a really simple question, I thought, which was, you know, we've heard from a lot of members of the blind community, a lot of the blind advocacy groups in the state, which members of the blind community were you talking to when you drafted this legislation? <laughs> you know, you paid a consultant a million dollars. Who did they talk to? And it, it was really quite disheartening to, to hear that they, they didn't even think of doing that. Um, and I, I mean, I don't, I don't really, it, it's not about ideology, but, you know, how can you change the entire policy of the Department of the Blind and not even think that it's your job to, to actually talk to the folks it would impact? It's, it's just really sickening. Um, thank you. <laughs> Thanks to you all for your uh, updates on our legislative issues. At this time, we will begin questions starting with one from the League. We remind all participants that questions are limited to one minute. Please observe the time limit so that legislators can address as many questions as possible. Legislators, please limit your responses to two minutes. All legislators are welcome to, join, to rejoin in responding to each question. We'll start with a lead question. Mental health care is one of the pressing issues many individuals are facing when accessing health care. What changes do you think need to happen within that system to help meet Iowans' needs? Well, the first thing is that we need to fund the child, the children's mental health system. There was a fair bit of work that went into creating it a few years ago, but there has actually not been a dedicated revenue stream for the children's mental health system. Instead, uh, Republicans are proposing legislation that would make this photo, which is of a boy who's cleaning uh, a slaughterhouse in Nebraska. This was taken by investigators from the Department of Labor. Uh, they want to make this legal and they don't want to bother funding the children's mental health system. That's wrong, and that is a perfect illustration of the priorities of the Republican-controlled legislature. Not to put too fine a point on it. Anybody else? It would be really helpful, and this is going from the emails, Facebook messages, Twitter messages, uh, personal texts that I've been receiving in the past month. Um, it would be really helpful if we stopped introducing legislation that harms people's mental health. <laughs> uh, yeah. 
Just, so I, I know that I, I believe that Johnson and Lynn counties have asked the legislature to fully fund their access centers. That would be one really positive thing because with the, the other push to, to reduce um, the ability of local, local government to collect property taxes, local government has to find ways to do things that, are, that, that include some more state funding. So if the state would fund that, that would be great. We do need more children's funding for children's mental health. We need funding for beds. We need funding for adult beds. Um, we, uh, there's basically there, there, and we need, it would be really helpful as well if the Republicans wouldn't, so almost sole focus that I've heard in the Senate so far wouldn't be on the fact that they took over mental health, the state took over mental health funding for the regions last year and why didn't localities roll back property taxes? That's not productive. Maybe the one last thing I would add before uh, our, our panel this morning, I had the opportunity to speak with some uh, students at the University of Iowa College, Carver College of Medicine, uh, who are up and coming um, students and, and providers in our, our state. Uh, when I asked, you know, what's the number one issue that a lot of you are, are worried about, virtually all of them responded, the political climate and how it's going to affect our patients. Uh, we have a provider shortage in the state, no doubt about it. Uh, and the fact that Republicans are pouring gasoline on the culture war, uh, the flames of the culture war is making that provider shortage worse, not better, because people uh, are less interested in practicing in Iowa. Uh, so, you know, it's the situation of Republicans asking, you know, why do we have this provider shortage? And it's like, let's take a look in the mirror. You know? <laughs> and that's a big, you can't, so it's hard to solve a mental health crisis uh, if you don't have the providers to do it. Um, I would also say there's a couple of things that we could be doing that would make broad improvements in mental health in Iowa. One would be raising the minimum wage because um, work-life balance makes a huge difference in people's just overall uh, mental health and not having to work two to three jobs in order to afford the rising cost of housing, of food, of gasoline, of life would make a difference. Um, I also would say we need to um, <sighs> improve the, so we have some wonderful systems in Iowa and nationally that um, give people access to crisis mental health services, <coughs> but ongoing sustaining mental health care services are incredibly lacking. And part of that is due to lack of providers. Part of that is due to lack of an understanding of the system. Um, you know, I know so many, I've seen so many just Facebook conversations on my personal, you know, friends' walls about how do I even find somebody and how do I find out if I find somebody, are they going to be covered by my insurance? And is it, you know, people assume it's going to be too expensive. Um, and I think that there's a lot we could be doing to increase access and education about how people can have those sustaining mental health services before they're in crisis. We need to fully fund 988. That would be helpful as well. That would help. Okay. We will now accept questions from the audience. Please make a line at the microphone there. Please keep your questions to one minute. All legislators will have an opportunity to respond to each question. Legislators each have two minutes to respond. Out of respect for all present, please do not interrupt speakers.
Hi, I'm Miriam Timmer Hackert from Coralville. I have two kids at West High. Currently, Iowa law is that in your health classes, um, teachers are supposed to mention that there's a vaccine available that prevents the transmission of genital warts and then stops, um, which in genital warts sometimes become cervical cancer, which is deadly, but the vaccines prevent 90% of cervical cancer deaths among the vaccinated population. Moms for Liberty is concerned that there are side effects from the vaccines and doesn't think schools should mention it. And does that have a chance of surviving? Um, so <laughs> I, I sat in on the subcommittee for this bill. Um, it, I was really, really proud of all the uh, medical professionals who came out to testify, including students from the Carver School of Medicine, uh, school nurses, experts in this field. And I, I think the important thing here is, you know, we have a vaccine that actually stops people from getting cancer. That's like winning the lottery. And so uh, to then stop teaching that is, is just ridiculous. Um, and we can't have policy that's shaped by an extreme group of people who, you know, don't believe in science and, and believe conspiracy theories online. That's just not how we should be shaping policy. Um, it did make it into the governor's omnibus education bill. Um, and, and I think that's that's quite concerning. I will note, you know, it doesn't ban teaching about the HPV vaccine. It just removes the requirement. But I really think the requirement should be in there because, like I said, you know, we've literally won the lottery. We have something that stops people from getting cancer. Well, in Iowa, um, the curriculum around the health care or, you know, what the kids learn in their health classes, um, it does not have to be scientifically based. So that's a problem as well. Um, so, yeah, I don't know what the heck's going on up there with this. I mean, really, it's just, it's crazy. It's insane. The complete lack of acknowledgement that science exists. Um, it's just baffling. If you're uh, planning to write to legislators about this one, it might be uh, helpful to mention that the HPV vaccine does not only protective against cervical cancer, but also about penile can against penile cancer and certain <laughs> other cancer cancers. And, and the bill also, what they do as well is take out the requirement to teach about HIV also. They don't, they don't ban either of those, as, as Representative Zadner said, but take away the requirement, which you can sort of imagine the, the knock-on effects. Well, I think it's important to define uh, groups that we're talking about, specifically Moms for Liberty, who claim to be a groundswell of concerned parents. It is a national, actually worldwide, but a national movement. It's well-orchestrated tremendously well-funded yeah. by shadow investors. You can't track who's pouring millions and millions into their accounts and advocacy. So I think uh, for people who want to join groups, I think it's always good to check out where this group originated from. And it seems like the talking points are very well mirrored in Tennessee, Florida, Texas, and so it's not, if it's a groundswell of Iowans, it just happened to be verbatim what they said in Alabama. 
Yeah, look, I mean, I, I got the HPV vaccine when I was in college. It was the right thing to do. Um, you know, it's something that people should do if they have the ability to do so. Um, you know, it, w why this is happening is because the Republican Party has polarized vaccination of kind of all kinds. Um, it's it's bad. I mean, I don't want to be glib, but it's it's a really troubling sign that this is where where we're at at this point. Well, that's it. Goodbye, everybody. Yeah. <laughs> I, I have a quick follow-up question. I'll just do it here. Doesn't Iowa have the highest rate of uh, syphilis sexually transmitted? Uh, no, throat cancer. And it was just in the paper. Ooh, we've yeah. skyrocketed on other sexually transmitted yeah. 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 Yep. Yeah. What's well, frustrating? This is a real issue. We lead the nation. And, uh, <laughs> We're number one. Yeah, it's one a, thing that's I, really frustrating to me is that, like, if you, I know a lot of folks play games on their iPhones. You see ads from Iowa Health, the Department of Health and Human Services, trying to increase awareness of the treatments for HIV, the the HPV vaccine. So this this legislation counters what our own Department of Health and Human Services is trying to do. There's also been an attack on a lot of the groups that were providing reproductive health care for many years in Iowa. Um, and obviously that's had a lot of knock-on effects around the rates of some of these sexually transmitted infections. Mm -hmm. Yeah, you can, you can tie that directly back to when um, we took away uh, funding for Planned Parenthood. And then we also, that caused us to lose $3 million in federal funds for family planning counseling um, and the governor's office said that they were going to create their own family planning um, <laughs> or council or, or whatever and I don't know that I don't think that's been done yet and I'm pretty sure that they're not putting six million dollars into it if it is my name is Nancy Porter I'm a retired teacher of retired supervisor of student teachers at the University of Iowa and so I come to the mic uh, taking us back to education first of all I really appreciate each and every one of you being there with your sound minds and bodies don't get yourself don't get sick over this because it is sickening I mean when I hear the legislators talk about, oh, well, the state can do a better job than the federal government in taking care of a lot of things. And then out of the other side of their mouth, they say, but we're going to dictate what happens in schools, in hospitals, in family planning. It, uh, it is upsetting. So we got to keep working, have faith, move forward. So my question um, is directed to banning books and not only choosing a book in one school that one parent might object to, but wanting that dictated across the state that every library needs to find that book and get rid of it. And then the paperwork that they have added on top of that bill for each one of the teacher librarians to handle um, if there's some way of easing that <laughs> or getting rid of it, of course, but uh, where do you think that's going to go? 
it's what it's in the governor's omnibus so-called education bill. Um, I I have two things that I'm saying to people right now. The first is, have you not heard of the internet? <laughs> and the second is, like the first rule of parenting is, if you tell your kids no, the very first thing they're going to do is go off and look for whatever it is to try and do, so that they will find it, they will read it. Um, a number of us. So it's. Um, I think probably the first book that will get banned in some places is the Bible. Oh, they'll never do that. Well, and, and uh, again, I sit on government oversight. We've had the meetings, and in fact, a little bit of a, out of frustration that we didn't get to hear from all parents. We set up our own uh, government oversight meeting, and the response or the people that wanted to talk to the committee was overwhelmed. It was over 100 people. And we did have a number of parents, a number of students speak. And one thing I learned during government oversight is generally the people on the committee have not read the books and in entirety and pick out pages. I will say this just on a personal nature, the book that I think is one of the best books in a long time is The Hate You Give. And I mentioned this in committee too. Uh, it actually brought a daughter and myself closer together. You know, as young people grow up, sometimes they don't think their parents are the smartest people in the world, or even smart at all. But that book itself and the movie brought us together during a difficult high school time. And it was an impetus for discussion on race and growing up and what life is honestly like outside of Johnson County in many ways. And so one of the books most likely to be banned is one of the ones that was very beneficial to my family. Now, the caveat is what was mentioned before, the governor wants if a book is banned in Orange City, that that book would also be banned in Iowa City. That doesn't sound like parental control or local control to me. What we have learned through the government oversight committees is that there is a process in place at every single school, public school in the state of Iowa. And the parents always have a right to request that their children not be assigned a book. That is across the board. And if that's the case, they can come up with an alternative book for their studies. So I just want to make sure that people understand what's in place right now. And parents do have that right, and I've always had that right to say, we, I don't want my child reading this book. Yeah, I, I want to uh, underscore Representative Jacoby said, when I was at Iowa City West High School, I remember this like it was yesterday, my uh, junior um, American literature class, we had, uh, there was a play that we were reading as a part of uh, a seminar uh, aspect of that class, and I had a, a classmate whose parents did not feel like that was a, a play they wanted their daughter to be reading, and so she read a different work, and it was it was fine. Um, you know the and the th the fact that you've got a group calling itself Moms for Liberty trying to ban books. There's a term for that. The term is Orwellian. 
it's I mean it, it really kind of it, it's it, I mean look we I mean it's I think it's important to laugh right because it's that's what we should do but we should also appreciate this for what what it is which is a very scary uh, moment for for our state and for our, for our democracy that that's where where we're at at this point um, you know obviously there's there's a lot of, of things that you could say about the governor's education bill uh, that it bans books, attacks curriculum. Uh, I think last month we heard about uh, some concerns about uh, how it might force the outing of LGBTQ kids who were in the classroom. Um, you know, and, and at the end of the day, it's it's. I think it's trying to solve an imaginary problem. I mean, this is, again, uh, coming from the party that wants you to believe that kindergartners are being taught CRT, that there are litter boxes in elementary schools. I mean, it just, it, it is a part of, as Dave said, this national um, right-wing attack on the institution of public education because they don't want our communities to have this shared background. That's a big part of why we have public education is to provide a foundation for an informed citizenry that can help make our democracy work. And they are going straight to the core of that foundation and trying to attack uh, our, our school system. And you know, by the way, when we warned that the, the voucher bill was just the beginning, this is what we were talking about. And like that was, the ink's not even dry on that bill. And this is where we're at. Well, thank you. Thank you. you represent Iowans. Don't forget it. And um, Representative Jacoby, when our kids reach the age of 22, all of a sudden, we've gotten so much smarter. <laughs> <laughs> well, my kids are over 22. And I, <laughs> I'll send them a text after the meeting and see if anything has changed. Hi, um, I'm Siri Felker. I'm a teacher at City High um, on the east side. I actually happened to teach about HPV and several other oncoviruses and their connection to cancers this week. So. And it was in a science class, imagine that. Um, but I, I wanted to say um, a couple things, kind of tying a lot of these ideas to together and thankful to Nancy for bringing us back to education. Um, first, I suppose, given that previous conversation about book banning and the idea that we want this parental choice for removing educational experiences um, for students when their parents aren't comfortable with that exposure. Um, do you see that? I mean, in, I, in my back office, we have conversations about whether that could move into the realm of like, I'm not comfortable with my child in this science lesson or in this social studies lesson. Um, and we've wondered whether that's going to make its way into other classroom experiences as we hear about the ideas of having cameras in classrooms and having like increasing standards of making our lessons transparent, even though it's all over the Canvas page. But um, so I guess that's one of my questions is whether like you see us moving in that direction. And the other question, given that we have these groups like Moms for Liberty, um, how much traction do you see that having among your peers in um, the Capitol? Like, do you do some of our Republican peers, even if they're not here, do they see that as like fringe and radical or like do you do you have a sense that you can have conversations with some of our um, other representatives there that this is like extremely incongruous with other arguments or is that just like totally on party lines yeah, I've tried to have conversations with um, Republican counterparts even very young ones um, and their responses are pretty much 
the talking points that they've been given by Moms for Liberty, right? Like I, I can show you data that absolutely proves that you are wrong and that this, this line of, of talk and belief is wrong scientifically. It is not, this is not correct. They don't care. They just want to listen to the Moms for Liberty. Um, do I see the, these things, uh, you know, weeding out into other areas? Absolutely. I, I think right now the Republican Party in Iowa feels emboldened to do whatever the hell they want. Yeah. And they're listening to the people who are giving the most money. And as Representative Jacoby said, Moms for Liberty is very well funded, as are other groups that are coming in and, and not being quite as visible as Moms for Liberty, but they're also pushing the same agenda. So, yeah, I, I think you're right on that. Yeah, I would say on this type of issue, they fall into three categories. One, they drink the Kool-Aid. Two, they're so scared of the governor, they pretend to drink the Kool-Aid. Three, they had tens of thousands of dollars spent against them in a primary by one of these groups in June, and they're not in the legislature anymore. Yeah, I would, <coughs> I would say good conversations happen, but then we vote. <laughs> well, that, uh, just a slight correction to Representative Zabner, it was hundreds of thousands for each. I mean, you're right, it was tens of thousands. Uh, part of why we're where we are is some of the friends, if you will, or people I used to work with in the House, the House Republicans, like John and Dustin Height, and others were primaried out because they stood firm in what they fighting for for public education. And it was... Uh, for uh, the primary in the Pella area, they spent, and this is for a house race, and the positions we so proudly and thankfully serve for you, our annual salary is $25,000 a year. So uh, for Dustin Heights and John Thorpe's race, they spent uh, over a quarter of a million against each one of them to replace them. So that's for a two-year house seat. So just so you know how much some of the outside big money has perforated Iowa politics. Yeah. I mean, I'd say that one of the interesting things is that we've heard from school superintendents, from university presidents, from others, that the skills we're teaching in our schools, the skills, that the information that you give, the the social emotional learning, all these other things they're trying they're they're trying to axe are exactly the skills that business wants kids to have and that they're asking us to teach. Point one. <clears throat> point two, um, with respect to Representative Jacoby's earlier point, look at what's happening in Florida, look at what's happening in Tennessee, and you'll see probably the precursor to the bills that are going to be brought here. They they move us they they literally move us down the road to fascism, and. And point three, this is starting to affect, if it's not already affected, the state's ability to attract business and conventions. Mm -hmm. So it is, a, it is affecting, speaking of money, it's affecting the bottom line. It has already started yeah. to affect. What's your, your name one more time? Siri Felker. Siri. Um, Siri, first of all, thank you for being a teacher. We appreciate it a lot. Yeah. <laughs> and in Iowa. And, and second of all, wouldn't it be nice if parents spent as much time and energy helping their kids with, like, their homework and organization as they did trying to ban But I mean, like, not to put too fine a point on it, but it just it, – it, I, I, we, I like to point out in the legislature that there's no group of Iowans who would like parents to be more involved in their teachers' education more 
than Iowa's public school teachers. And for whatever reason, like this, you know, they're 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 not listening. But I think it, it goes back to the point that Adam and Dave made, which is that there is, you know, this national effort that that is happening across the country to to really go straight to the heart of our public education system. Uh, you saw those forces, you know, deployed in in the primaries last year. You saw those special interest groups literally fly out from Washington D.C. so that in the middle of the night, when we were done debating the voucher bill in the Senate, they could literally high five senators who are walking off the floor after we were finally done. And so, you know, we are up against a really, really enormous, um, well-funded machine. We have a choice to make. Are we going to let them get away with it or not? Right? Now, the people who are sitting here are all on this team, and we're fighting for our public education system the best way that we know how. Um, we all have a lot of work to do to, to to make sure that here in Iowa, we're not going to let out-of-state groups call the shots. Now, I will tell you that as uh, as the minority leader, we're, I'm working every day to try and make sure that we have the ability to support pro-public education candidates for the Iowa Senate. Uh, and I'm also very glad to report uh, that a month ago, I was you know, kind of watching my laptop as the state central committee for the IDP was having that meeting. It took about 12 hours, but they did finish the meeting and, and have some good positive outcomes. And so it's going to take a long time. This is going to be a really, really hard and my number one thing that I would say to everybody in this room is do not become discouraged. Uh, this is going to be difficult. This is going to be hard. But you have an incredible team of people who are fighting for you on behalf of you and your students. And we can't do it without you. So thanks for what you're doing. Let's keep up the good work. And just in a response to that, I just wanted to tell you guys, like, I know that within our office, um, like, the thing that keeps us from feeling like we just, like, cannot continue in Iowa is knowing that, like, this panel of people is behind us. And I see this parallel, and I can imagine how, like, in just getting beaten down every week the way that I'm sure that you do, um, I can imagine that that's just demoralizing and really difficult to bounce back from. But I, I really, really appreciate that you're there because it's, it's what keeps me feeling like I can be here making sure that I don't leave my kids behind um, to just deal with the consequences. So thank you so much, seriously. Thank you. Thank you. So I have to follow that, huh? Um, you better I'm, say something nice about us first. <laughs> do that, Amy. Uh, I believe his time is up. Yes. So my name is Mike Carberry, and I'm the outreach director for Bright Future Iowa. And thank you for fighting the good fight on a daily basis. There's three new ones up here that weren't here last year when we had these forums. And thank you for stepping up and continuing to fight the good fight. I have listened to many of your speeches up there. In the face of adversity, you inspire all of us. So thank you for what you do, including you, Dave. And, <laughs> and I tend to agree with your daughters. So okay. <laughs> uh, <laughs> I'm kidding. Uh, I've been working on renewable energy for 25 years. Back in the day, it was all bipartisan. And we became the number one state in wind energy because of that. Now we have a lot of pushback in renewable energy. And it comes from two different directions. It comes from fake astroturf groups that purport to be citizens' activism groups, but they all use the same language, and their money all comes from the fossil fuel industry. Then we have the ag groups, including the Farm Bureau and the commodity groups, that want every acre of Iowa land put into 
commodity agriculture, corn and beans, CAFOs, and ethanol. So there's three bills at the, up in the state Senate right now. One is a solar setback bill, one is a wind setback bill that are both horrible, and one is a great bill, a community solar bill. So this is probably for the, last, the left side here. Uh, Stage right. Yes, the right side, the correct side. <laughs> Where are we with renewable energy bills uh, in the Senate, and have we seen anything in the House? Thank you. Yeah, th uh, th thanks, Mike. Um, so a few quick things. First of all, last year Republicans passed the solar setback bill out of the Ag Committee, but it did not come up for a floor vote. I expect the same thing will happen this year, that they will pass it out of committee, but it will not come up for a floor vote. Um, the, the solar setback bill essentially says that solar panel, commercial scale solar projects, should be subject to the same setback requirements that confined animal feeding operations are, which is very funny because I've never had problems with the smell of a solar panel, yeah. personally. <laughs> Have so a very sensitive nose. It's a, yeah, I guess. Um, so that's just it, it just it 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 defies reason, which is you'll obviously know is a recurring theme at the state house under the current majority. Uh, and the wind setback thing is just I mean it's ridiculous. I was a national international leader on wind energy. Um, you know, this exciting wind prime project that Mid Americans working on that's going to continue to cement that. Uh, you know, and, and although you know our utility companies in the state certainly aren't perfect, they have done incredible work when it comes to generating really, really significant amounts of electricity from wind uh, and increasingly solar. Uh, we know that there are some solar, large-scale solar projects uh, that are underway here in our area, in eastern Iowa, uh, and it's, it's, I think it's really exciting to see those come online. The other thing that I'm trying to help my, my Republican colleagues understand is that taking, you know, these solar panels aren't necessarily there forever. You've got a life cycle of 20 to 25 years. You have the opportunity to use uh, regenerative agricultural practice to help restore soil qual quality and soil health underneath those panels so that by the time they, they rotate off, you can actually have higher yield on that acreage. Uh, than, than you're, you'd see otherwise. The other thing that's really interesting to me about this, this is fundamentally a landowner rights issue, right? And so we're having all these conversations about the carbon pipeline, but then the same group of people is turning around and wants to go after landowner rights um, when it comes to the solar siting stuff. So I'm, I'm, really, I, I'm really hopeful that neither of those bills is going to advance this year. I don't think they'll get any further than the committee level. I haven't had a chance yet to, to review the community solar piece, so I would actually really appreciate it if you could send me some information about that. Okay. I would love to take a look at it. Um, unfortunately, I, I, I'm skeptical that we're going to be able to get anything going this year, yeah. uh, but uh, I think it's a great conversation for us to have because um, we, we absolutely need to figure out how we expand access uh, because it can't just be for folks who can afford the, the nice panels on their house. We got to have a community access. So, so it's a, that's an equity issue in my perspective. Uh, all I can I can talk to the head of local government to see if the if community solar is moving because it, it would be a huge boon to just, communities all over the state. It's uh, Senate file three three two, and it was just introduced this week. So I have a copy of the bill I can give. Uh, just I only brought one copy, but whoever wants it, I'll give it to you. Thank you very much. So. I have a quick answer. I had the opportunity last year to attend a conference at the University of Iowa about decarbonizing Iowa, um, and they brought in professors from our three regents universities, other nearby states, um, and presented some really, really cool ideas for opportunities we have here in the state. Uh, you know, one is that we have so many opportunities for renewable energy here in Iowa that we're quickly reaching the point where we may outstrip consumer demand, and we can 
come into place with really cool ideas like uh, localized uh, fertilizer production and other ideas that could help rejuvenate uh, rural economies. And so we have a really great opportunity here to rethink the economy of our state, bring opportunities to a lot of rural areas. And uh, it's sort of shocking to see Republicans push regulation that would get in the way <laughs> of rejuvenating rural economies. So. Yeah, I was in Franklin County last week. They get $4 million of taxation from two wind farms, and the people are fighting additional wind farms. And 85 counties in the state are losing population. Those people are moving from the rural areas to the cities, but they're not taking the roads and the bridges with them. Somebody needs to pay for that, and it should be the rural economic development, which includes broadband and renewable energy. Thank you. Um, I was at an I was at an event just really briefly. I was at an event in Ely uh, a week ago, exactly this time, um, specifically about the carbon pipelines. And um, one thing that was really interesting to me, one moment that was really interesting to me, was that the majority of those people, the people in that room, including everyone else at the table with me, were Republicans. And uh, I said something. I said. Uh, I got a little, I got a little hot under the collar. We all in the room agreed on the pipelines, um, on one thing, and I said, "We as representatives and we as a legislature are not responsible to corn. We're responsible to the people and land of Iowa." And everybody started clapping. <laughs> so, I bring that up because there is a lot of. There are a lot of conversations about the money we've already put into the corn and soybean and ethanol industries and the fact that we are so reliant on those industries. But as Representative Zabner points out, we don't have to be. There are so many opportunities in Iowa to diversify our economy and to pivot away from reliance on ethanol uh, subsidies. Um, and I think it's really important that we recognize that those conversations are not unwelcome in other rooms. Not, not that they're welcome in every room, <laughs> but there are other places where those conversations are happening. Thank you. <clears throat> Good morning. I'm Susan Ansel, and I'm with the League of Women Voters. Um, I wanted to ask your opinions. This is an education question indirectly, and that has to do with the proposal made um, before the legislature to uh, legislate uh, or make the option of teaching gun safety in the schools, and that could go either way in terms of being a good thing or a bad thing, but then also to allow the presence of guns in automobiles just so long as the gun is not in sight. Um, it doesn't say anything about it has to be, uh, you know, have a safety on it or in a box or anything. Would you please comment on that bill and what you think could happen with it? Thank you. I think the gun so safety. It's two different, it is two house. different bills. Yeah, it is two different bills. So House File 73 is the one that would require, uh, or would, sorry, would uh, offer, um, it has been amended to no longer require or believe it's going to be amended. It hasn't, because it just had its subcommittee on Tuesday um, to no longer require, but to uh, offer gun safety training K through 12 in our public schools. Um, I have concerns about this legislation. I understand one of the goals of it, which is to protect children who encounter guns and have no idea how to handle that situation. 
um, there are kids in Iowa who first encounter guns in a, a situation that is not a teaching moment. It's a moment where they have to make decisions. And if they haven't grown up in a household with guns where they were given gun safety education, um, that can be really scary and it can be really dangerous for those kids and for the people around them. That being said, I have a lot of concerns about House File 73. It references a specific NRA program. Now, I took the time to actually take a look at that NRA program this uh, before the subcommittee, and I, I don't disagree with any of the things that it teaches. It's designed for K through fourth grade. I'm going to be honest, I can't imagine any third or fourth graders taking it very seriously because it's really more kindergarten, first grade oriented. Um, but it teaches kids to stop, run away, and tell an adult if they, if they see a gun, um, which is, I have nothing against that, that uh, education. Um, it's founded on an eight-minute video, and then there are some like additional read-along stories um, that, to reinforce the lesson or to sort of show how that lesson could play out in specific situations. The, the problem is that the, the, there's a few problems, but one of the problems is that the legislation sort of just makes reference to a curricular program. It doesn't tell us when this is going to be done. It doesn't tell us whether this is going to be ta taking away instructional time. It doesn't tell us which teachers are going to be responsible for providing this instruction. Um, there might be other programs that would qualify that haven't been pre-vetted because it isn't prescriptive. It, I understand the, the, one of the goals of this legisl legislation, but it, I have real concerns about it. Yeah, I find this whole conversation kind of dystopian. I mean, I know that there are really great young people who um, have taken on the cause of gun violence and reducing it, uh, and that's great, but it really shouldn't be the responsibility of a kindergartner to keep people safe from guns. That's the responsibility of the adults. Um, I'm really thankful to folks in the room who do the work of teaching people uh, responsible gun ownership, how to keep uh, guns and ammunition locked and in separate storage facilities. Uh, and really, as a legislature, our focus should be on how we can make sure adults are keeping kids safe, uh, not on making first graders responsible for gun safety. Yeah, thank you. To, to, follow, to, to follow up on what Representative Zabner said, there's a huge focus on books. I'm really not aware that books are killing kids. Uh, and uh, I believe that more kids are killed by gun violence in this country than by, by anything else right now. Um, I would much rather my kid or grandkid read anything than that they have to do um, active shooter drills or, or any of the rest of that. Gun safety is incredibly important. The SMART program is by, by mom's demand is excellent, um, but the, this should not be on our kids. Could you comment about the other bill that would allow for guns to be on the school grounds in vehicles? Really, really bad. <laughs> Can't top that. Probably going to happen. Yeah. Yeah. A disaster waiting to happen. I, I will, I'll just say this. Can I ask, raise your hand if you know somebody who as a preteen or teenager would check to see if people's car doors were unlocked 
to steal stuff out of them. Because I know somebody who used to do that. I don't know that mine wouldn't. I, 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 I know somebody who as a, as a young adult, or as a, sorry, as a preteen and teenager would go check car doors to see if there was like cash in the glove compartment or in the, so that's all I'm going to say about that. My the, daughter would never do that. It just, you know, it, it, there needs to be more discussion of what level we're talking about. When I was in high school, uh, we did have uh, a shotgun in the car in the case because we went pheasant hunting right before school or uh, after school. That's a whole different discussion than what we're having now is if people are carrying other types of guns in their car. And w one of the... One of the moments that kind of highlighted for me once is there was a, a young woman, I think in her mid-20s, who actually pulled the gun out of her purse, was kind of pointing it toward my youngest brother and I at the shop, and I turned it away, and I said, I hope the safety's on. And she goes, what's a safety? <laughs> Just please put the gun back in your purse, and let's, and no, we don't sell guns here, because it was an antique store, but it was just kind of that moment. What, what training, I, you know, I want my daughters to know how to handle or respect firearms. I just don't know if I want it to take away from their studies in third grade when we're worried about test scores too. Yeah, yeah I, I haven't had a chance to review the uh, second bill that you asked about. On the first one, I mean, <clears throat> this, is the, this is the state that we live in. Uh, voters approved an amendment to our state constitution overwhelmingly to put the Second Amendment with a strict scrutiny standard into our state constitution. Like, fr frankly, this is just the beginning of the laws that are going to be introduced to, to roll um, back restrictions on on um, where guns can be in, in public life. I absolutely think that having gun safety education, including for young people, is of paramount importance because accidents happen when a young person in encounters a firearm and doesn't know what a safety is, doesn't know that you should always treat a gun like it's loaded, doesn't know, you know, so look, I, I haven't, again, this is only in the House, this is not in the Senate, so I haven't had a chance to look at it closely, uh, but given that this is the state that we now live in, young people need to know, because they are going to encounter firearms more often, they, they just are, uh, and they, there has to be, you know, whether you want to do that in a school setting or in a private setting at home, um, I don't, have a super strong opinion on that one way or another, but young people absolutely need to be more intentional about firearm uh, safety and respect uh, than they did, you know, a year ago. That's just a, a reality. Uh, one other concern that's been raised to me uh, is that this bill may end up funneling money into gun lobbies because <laughs> um, some of those groups are the ones that provide some of these trainings. So, thank you very much. Thank you. Good morning. I'm Tom Karsner from the uh, local Sierra Club. And uh, getting to the brass tacks of what really rules in Iowa, the King Ethanol, uh, this week some news was made in that uh, uh, House Speaker uh, Grassley uh, put forward a bill with 22 other Republicans uh, supporting it to, it's not a perfect bill, but it's better than most, of uh, requiring 90% of the miles, not the landowners, that's one of the things that's not the best about it, but 90% of the miles of the carbon capture uh, pipeline to be uh, uh, negotiated with before mm -hmm. eminent domain can be used. And um, doing my math, which I learned at 
Robert Lucas Southeast and City High School here. Uh, it seems like 23 Republicans plus a good chunk of Democrats could get that bill passed in the House. Um, so one question is, is it uh, at all realistic that that may happen? And then secondly, uh, it seems like uh, the Senate has been reticent to even call a similar or anything close to that up into committee. And the third point, obviously, is there's nowhere close to a veto override, uh, which uh, Her Highness Governor Reynolds would never sign, I believe. So uh, is this just a step forward this year? What do you see as far as eminent domain legislation? Well, as a West High graduate, I'm going to have to say I don't think I trust your math. <laughs> <laughs> but just kidding, I do, Tom. Um, I, I think this is probably one of those bills that's being put forward um, to placate people. Um, I'm <clears throat> hey, crazier things have happened, right? Um, I I can't tell you that it won't go anywhere, um, or that it will. But I think this is this is probably more of a show. Um, and we'll see what happens in the next couple weeks. But I, you know, the other thing to, is that it's not incumbent on Democrats to pass their legislation. I understand, but this is one of those rare cases. I agree. Uh, the, the, <laughs> make, this make one I might be it. inclined to help a little bit. Okay. I can be nice for a day. <laughs> but I, I, you touched on part of the concern of the program, too, is 90% is the miles, not necessarily the owners. Right. And there's always been that for decades. What does voluntary mean versus eminent domain? Sometimes a threat of domain makes it less voluntary. Coercion. But it's interesting, the state party chair of the <clears throat> Republicans, Jeff Kaufman, who he and I are friends, has touted for a decade against eminent domain. I mean, railed on it, railed on it, railed on it. Here's the proof now that they can step up and eliminate eminent domain for private industrial purposes. So it's, it's time for the rhetoric to match the action. I, I worry that this bill will provide cover for folks in the House who know how unpopular are these pipelines in their district, and then it'll go nowhere. That's that's my great fear with that piece of legislation Only right now. The house. That people can say that that folks can go back home and say, "Well, I voted to protect you, and I did what I could." Sorry. There, Is my Senate? There, there are several bills in the Senate, but I don't know if by uh, I think Taylor. they've all been authored by Senator Jeff Taylor yeah. from Northwest Iowa. He he brought one last session, I believe. Um, he does not have a great record, uh, but, but I don't. I don't know if I, I don't have the sense that at this point that leadership's going to push any of them. No, Republicans haven't scheduled subcommittees for any of Senator Taylor's bills, so I don't think we're even going to have the opportunity to vote on anything in the Senate. Um, going back to the House, at the end of the day, the Speaker makes the decision whether or not to bring the bill to the floor once it's through committee, mm -hmm. and so it will ultimately be up to the Speaker if he wants to work with Democrats on it. Uh, not not just to to the Democratic Party on on the House side. I, I Tom, I don't think we're going to see a bill in the Senate. Um, you know the concerns that we have with the pipeline are obviously, uh, you know, there's a huge number of concerns. Um, unfortunately, I just I think it's very clear that there's not going to be any legislation that will move out of the Senate, and therefore, you know, it almost doesn't matter what the House does. Whitford has made it very clear there's no legislation moving. It stays the same. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, King Ethanol. Yeah. Thank you. 
I tell my also there's one interesting thing that I learned of this last week, which is that apparently there's been some conversation now about uh, geological formations in the state of Iowa that would allow the sequestration and storage of these the, the sequestered carbon on site rather than having to go into a pipeline. Now, they've paid out already like tens of millions of dollars in voluntary easement payments, so I can't imagine the pipeline people are going to like cut bait at this point. But I just that was something that I had just heard in the last 10 days or so that I thought was an interesting development. Follow up with the state geologist out of University of Iowa, if you're curious, to learn more about the basalt formations in Iowa that could be used for local geologic sequestration. Hi, my name is Susie Corbin-Muir, and a um, young friend shared a question with me that I'm going to share with you. Nationwide, we are seeing a scarcity of prescription medication. We're thinking specifically about ADHD medications. A lot of people are having to find pharmacies that carry their prescriptions by themselves, and sometimes their insurance won't cover the prescription at a certain pharmacy. Is there anything the state government can do to alleviate this issue? I would love it if your friend would email us some more information to learn about what specific issue she or he is having and um, what some of those other opportunities would, would be. Uh, at the state level, I think it's pretty hard to, to affect that. That's more of a national question. But if there are opportunities to help at the state level, I, was, I certainly would be all ears. And I don't know if, the, if, it's, if this is connected, but I believe the Biden administration is, is about to require that appointments for medications such as ADHD medication be in person again. I don't know if that has contributed to anything or not. Um, I have a little bit of background, but not much. I just know my daughter has some, a friend who has ADHD, and uh, she wasn't able to get her medication for over two months. Yeah. Um, and so there is an issue. I think it's a bigger issue, too, just in pharmaceuticals in general, medications that people are having trouble either paying for or the out-of-pocket is so high that they uh, take their life, you know, take their health at risk because they, they spread the doses out over however long they can rather than taking the amount. And then we wind up with people in emergency rooms where it's very expensive to treat. So just... Um, some thoughts there. So yeah. I'll ask my friend to share um, yeah, any please. information that she has about this issue so that you guys have a little bit of background. Thanks, Thank sir. you so Thank much. You. Good morning. Diane Duncan Goldsmith from Iowa City, and I'm also former school food service director, nutrition services for Iowa City Schools. So, Senator, I would like to thank you for your efforts to get universal free meals for all the kids in Iowa. Mm -hmm. Lots of research <laughs> shows how important that is. Um, obviously, this week we learned that there is a small group of um, Republican representatives, including um, Rep Representative Hora, who believe that butter needs to be mandated in school nutrition <laughs> programs. Um, I was in school nutrition for 25 years, retired 12 years ago. Um, I'm not sure what research they've done on school nutrition, but butter did used to be part of the National School Lunch Program meal pattern. Um, obviously, nutrition science improves, and that's no longer the case. Um, one of the statements that they said about butter was to make meals healthier. I'm not sure that the representatives in this group realize how high in saturated fats butter are. Um, and it's one of the bad fats considered by the American Heart Association. 
So I'm not sure where Republicans are getting their information. In addition, trans fats are not allowed in school meal programs. In addition, in 2019, Tufts University study showed school meals are the most nutritious meals <laughs> available to children. So I just, how do you get truth to these people who are just pulling nonsense out of the air? I can't believe it's not butter. <laughs> Thank you so much. Thank you so much for bringing an actual um, educated and professional perspective on this. Jeff Shipley, Representative Jeff Shipley, walked through a school tour uh, a few years ago, back in 2019, and saw that the kids were being provided with pats of margarine for a baked potato bar day. Probably a USDA And ever commodity. since has been trying to... Uh, <laughs> so I had a conversation with... He sits next to me, and we had a conversation about uh, shelf-stable oils and how important those are to school nutrition <laughs> programs. And he kind of went, huh, well... I didn't really think about that. I was really picturing those little pats of, so that, yeah. Um, and also, Jeff, if you want, uh, specifically, what we learned this week is if you want to get Jeff Shipley to pay attention to uh, research, it seems to need to come from Sweden. He referenced <laughs> Sweden a lot this week. It was strange. Jeff Shipley is the same guy as the HPV bill. Um, he <clears throat> is a real believer in misinformation. Uh, you know, it's um, it's unfortunate. I, I don't really think this bill is going anywhere. I hope uh, not. But it is. I mean, I do think uh, it is alarming to see how many completely unserious pieces of legislation from people like Jeff Shipley are tolerated by Republican leadership uh, because they want to placate uh, the misinformation mm -hmm. and the people who believe it. Is Representative Shipley also the one that introduced the uh, schools have to provide vitamins? Yeah. He's yeah. got the okay. vitamin multi. Yep. Oh, I got a whole list. <laughs> yeah. Okay. <laughs> no, I, I was surprised yeah. to see that since row crops, including, I believe, soybeans, are part of the few um, foods that Iowa still grows, that soybean oil was not in his list of approved. Representative Hora was very mm -hmm. excited to, for anything that will improve the prospects for dairy butter in the state. <laughs> Thank you much. I, I, I attended that subcommittee because our our representative, Molly Buck, who was on that subcommittee, um, just sort of, I'll be honest, sometimes we don't know what we're walking into on some of these subcommittees. And I said, well, if I have the time, I'm going to be there with you just to see what happens. Uh, and oh my gosh, am I glad I went to that subcommittee meeting. It was fascinating. Right. Thank um, you so much. Diane, you, you mentioned Senator Weiner's legislation on, on expanded nutrition opportunities. That remind, there's a bunch of great bills that Democrats have introduced, including that one. Um, on the Senate side, uh, we've introduced uh, legislation to enact paid family leave, uh, to expand maternal Medicaid services, uh, to grow child care assistance, to fully fund preschool, uh, to strengthen the Veterans Trust Fund, to establish a $15 minimum wage. Uh, and obviously to provide all Iowa kids with a healthy, nutritious uh, breakfast and lunch at no cost uh, directly to them. Um, so there are a bunch of great bills that are out there, bills that would actually make our state better, would make our state stronger, and bills that are all going to die next week when, le when Republican legislators refuse to give them uh, a fair hearing in subcommittee or committee process. So that's the contrast, right, between what the Republican agenda is, which is whatever Jeff Shipley has heard recently and this grab bag of things from Moms for Liberty versus an actual serious public policy agenda that would move Iowa forward. 
Uh, and so I just I, I want to thank my Democratic colleagues for all the work that they do day in, day out to bring forward great ideas like this uh, to address real problems, not yeah. this one. So okay. thank you so much. I, I just really enjoyed getting the lecture from the gentleman who sits in front of me about what's in margarine as he ate a hot dog. <laughs> <laughs> Sauerkraut, of course. <laughs> Thanks so much. Thank you. So, Miriam Timmer Hackert, back again, but as a member of the Iowa Bar this time. And this whole butter thing is, is really funny for lawyers because we all read a Supreme Court case about oleomargarine because the dairy industry has always had very good lobbying. Um, Iowa, when I was, went to Iowa Law School, I told my professor I wanted to be a judge, and he was from Illinois, and he said, you should start donating money to the governor. That's what you should do if you want to be a judge. And then I learned that in Iowa, actually, we had this awesome system that the League and the Iowa Bar Association helped set up where lawyers and judges help promote judges, help select judges based on quality and merit. and survey lawyers every year so that we know if certain judges have problems and Iowans can have that chance to vote to not reelect judges um, based on solid information from lawyers who go in front of those judges. And it's just heartbreaking that the governor is once again setting up a system so that she has more control over who gets selected as judges instead of having lawyers elect judges for quality reasons. Iowa's like we had the gold standard, other states were jealous because we had quality judges and they had judges who kind of bought their position and you know, other states have judges that have to spend a lot of money running for election and it's just really, really sad to see Iowa's system go so that the governor can have more power. It sure is. Uh, you know, so one of this is so the, the Republican attacks on the, the merits uh, selection process was one of the first things that they ran my, my first year in 2019. And you know, Republicans will get up and they'll say, oh, the problem here is that we have some super citizens, people who are from the Bar Association who get to vote as a part of selecting who advances as the recommended panel for the, for the governor to make her selection. And what the real problem is, is that they didn't like some of the rulings, and so they wanted to try and rig the system so that there would be different people being selected who would write different opinions. That's all. That is the problem that they were trying to solve. But when they say that their concern is with the super, like, that's a lie. Yeah. That's not true, not even remotely true. The concern that they have is with the, the, just, the decisions that were written by an Iowa Supreme Court, uh, the majority of whom, by the way, were picked by Republicans to recognize marriage equality, to strike down owner's restrictions on abortion, and, and, and several other things that were, from their perspective, disqualifying. This is why Republicans launched a campaign to uh, not retain three justices in 2010, mm -hmm. why they tried to go again in 2012 at Justice Wiggins, and, and several others. Um, so, I, I, Miriam, I appreciate you bringing this, this forward. Those votes were party line down, I mean, straight down the middle. Um, it's, it's incredibly, it, it is, uh, uh, it's, it's an injustice, frankly, that this is happening. And, and, you know, it, when you look at others, this is a perfect example of Republicans trying to make Iowa more like other states instead of other states trying to be more like Iowa. We had 
you're, the gold standard is absolutely the right way to describe it. One of the best processes in the country when it came to merit selection for our justice system. And Republicans looked at it and said, no, we want to be more like other states uh, and less Iowan, frankly. And I would point out that, and as I sit on the floor, that this is, this is a system that Iowa voters voted for 61 years ago when they decided to take it out of the partisan sphere and make it a, make and create these nonpartisan merit-based judicial nominating commissions. And by taking away, and I presume it'll eventually come through the House, by taking away the, the, the um, district court judge, the senior district court judge who, who was sitting, this is, the, this is this year's version, at the head of each of the judicial nominating commissions for the district courts and putting in a Republican, that shifts the balance so that, that the, uh, the Republicans will have um, lion's share of the say on it. Yeah, there, there's a broader trend here. Uh, Representative Nielsen and I are working on the reorganization bill from the governor. It says the words, at the pleasure of the governor, almost 30 times in the bill, uh, and takes a whole lot of things that are four or six-year terms and changes them to being at the pleasure of the governor. Uh, and one of the things that stuck in my mind from this week is I asked the legislative liaison from her office, uh, you know, what what restrictions would there be on the governor firing one of these uh, one of these cabinet leaders for political reasons? Uh, and her answer was, I can't predict the future. So. Uh, Miriam, I just want to say, knowing you as I do, that Iowa would be lucky to have a judge with your compassion and your clear thought thinking. So I just, yeah, I just want to say that. Rick Dobbins from Iowa City. I appreciated the previous discussion regarding HPV, HPV vaccination. As a primary health care provider at the University of Iowa, I work for the state of Iowa. Um, I work to take care of Iowans. And many of us in primary care are very aware, as there is current legislation regarding a restriction of HPV vaccination discussion in our schools, that also might be extended um, in a future time to those of us who provide primary care at the University <clears throat> of Iowa. Just wanted to let everybody know is that we see this as a problem. We also see this as an opportunity to be, in the great American tradition, civilly disobedient. So. <laughs> Thank you, Doctor. Thank you. Make good trouble. Make good trouble. Hello. Everybody, Shannon Patrick, Iowa City. A little bit of a change of topic, but because it's the week before funnel, I wanted to get in. Last year, there was a non-controversial bill that passed, I think, with one person voting against it in the House on human trafficking, mm. uh, the gist of which I understand to be basically, hey, if you were trafficked as a minor, the state of Iowa should treat you as a crime victim rather than as a juvenile delinquent and uh, allocate services accordingly. Are you aware of any similar bills that are going through this year? Uh, and if not, is it too late to get anything to happen? Sure. Uh, if you saw, I have last year's House file number for it. It's too late to, to file bills, um, but I don't know if there is one. No. I don't think so. In judiciary or public safety or anything? Well, there's one that actually I filed that I've had discussions with Representative Holt, and that's one uh, that does steer a victim away from re-victimhood and what is the best route going through the legal system and quite frankly the system of care 
after the trauma. Uh, it was a good conversation, but I'll have, I will say this. In one respect, uh, we or I or we had almost as much headwind from the state court system as we did between Democrats and Republicans. They, uh, their concern was that there wasn't enough traffic victims to ca cause a change in the court system. <clears throat> Excuse me. And my point was there's hundreds more victims, but they won't come forward in our current system. So we're a little bit at a log jam, and gosh, that's something I'd like to say at a positive bipartisan note as we get close to closing out is both uh, Representative Holt and I are working on this issue. Whether we get something through this year or not, I don't know, but it, it is, it, it's a top concern of mine. Shannon, in the Senate, uh, I don't know if it's going to get through the funnel uh, next week or not, but there was a bipartisan uh, piece of legislation that was introduced. Uh, many of you are probably familiar with the case of Piper Lewis, um, a young woman from Des Moines who uh, pled guilty to voluntary manslaughter when she killed the man who had been um, trafficking her and had kind of serially raped her. Um, she had been ordered to pay $150,000 in restitution. And um, I don't recall the bill number off the top of my head, but I remember that did get out of at least subcommittee, I believe, two weeks ago um, that would change uh, in depending on the situation, obviously, make sure that future victims uh, like Piper were not um, being bound by restitution. So I'm not sure where that is, um, but that's something that's probably the, the closest to kind of what you're referring to right now, uh, tied directly to uh, a recent example of that happening in, in the Des Moines area. Yes, on. Thank, Thank you very much. Thank and if there's anybody we should pester on the uh, the one in your committee, let me know. Good morning. Johnson County Supervisor Roy Sam Porter. Um, I just kind of want to see where we are with uh, the manufacturer housing. Uh, we know that the um, out-of-state uh, people have been coming in buying the manufactured housings and how they have been going up on the rents and everything. So um, has anything happened as far as trying to get something going through as far as um, them having the same as the Iowa um, tenants and landlords um, rights? Yeah, Senate Republicans still have not been willing to move any legislation on our side. I'd heard there were some conversations happening in the House, but I'm not sure where they are. I, earlier in the session, I was asking about some of the, so like the Tenants' Bill of Rights that the Manufactured Home <coughs> Housing co uh, Coalition had press, has been pressing for. And I my understanding was that Representative Losey was g working on it, but I haven't, not I haven't got anything passed since then. Um, yeah, we, th we've, the Democrats filed a bill on the Senate side, yeah. but again, uh, uh, just this past week. But um, again, unless we can find a Republican to run it right now, it's not going to happen. But we thought it was really important to still to keep that issue out there so that, so that everyone knows it's a huge problem. Thank you. And also, too, uh, Senate File 235, can you speak a little bit about that? Because we've been fighting for minimum wage for quite a while now. So... Yeah, I mean, bluntly, it's not going to go anywhere. Okay. 
That's what I. I that's yeah, what I Senate, Senate, uh, Senate File Two Thirty Five would establish a fifteen dollar minimum wage. Just what it sounds like, it would raise uh, Iowa's minimum wage from seven twenty five an hour to fifteen dollars an hour. Uh, and critically, uh, we included an automatic uh, adjustment for inflation. So rather than having to have this conversation every year, it would just kind of automatically track inflation so that when prices go up, wages would go up as well. Um, it hasn't changed in 15 years. Uh, what, what was it 15 years ago that got us where we are? Democrats had control. So there you are. Thank you. I think we have time for one more question. <laughs> and here comes one more question. I'm Jan Taylor from Iowa City, and um, I'm a volunteer with Inside Out Reentry Community. They work with uh, people who've completed their sentences and are returning to Johnson County. Um, I know there's so many things that I'd love to see reformed about our judicial system. Uh, right now, we have a committee who will be working on compassionate release for people with terminal illnesses or age. Are there other issues that have more likelihood of having bills passed in the judiciary committees? Well, but having been through a couple of your simulations, I can say that it is amazing the roadblocks that are um, put in front of, of returning citizens. Um, the things that I found to be most troubling were, you know, how hard it is to get identification after um, uh, release. Um, you know, you're still bound by so many things like periodic drug tests and um, and other, you know, those those things get get scheduled, not at your convenience, right? So if you're trying to find a job, you're trying to get food, you're trying to you know find transportation and all these things. Um, so I think there's a lot of places where we could make um, improvements on the reentry experience. Um, I, I, like I said, it's too late to file bills now. Um, but there's so many places that need to be touched so that it is an easier reentry um, for people. And um, I, w I would just be very happy to continue working with you and I, Richard Grugan in um, in my district. Um, I, you know, I talked to him a good bit about this stuff, so I just really would be interested to keep the conversation going and, and make sure that we can start addressing some of these things. Are there other issues that I should sort of bring up to our group that you are working or that have bills in the pipeline? Uh, one thing is uh, the, the package, the um, marijuana package that was released this this past Tuesday, one of the things that I'm most excited about in it is that it would uh, lead to an automatic expungement of the records of folks who were convicted of nonviolent marijuana possession, low-level marijuana possession charges uh, two or more years ago, and would um, then that those subsequent, those expungements would continue for the next, until those charges are gone from folks' records, and having some experience in what um, it is like for someone to go through the expungement procedure uh, without the funds to hire a lawyer just for that separate part of their legal trials, uh, legal, maybe trials is the wrong word, but legal experience, um, that is, I think, a huge step forward. I, I would love to see some momentum behind that particular. I mean, the whole package, honestly, is something I'm excited about. There are little things that I would change if I were making it my perfect marijuana package, but there's a lot to love in it. 
Um, but that in particular excites me. So they have to individually present their case they to... Would, under, my understanding is that the way that the, that, that the marijuana reform package was written, these would be automatic expungements. The, 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 the um, Department of... It's actually... The, basically, it would be on the department to look for these, these records and expunge them and, and notify the people that their records had been expunged. Okay. I don't think we have to reinvent the wheel for offender reentry. Uh, I actually uh, worked with a grant program for five years for offender reentry under the Workforce Investment Act, and that was a successful plan run through the Bush administration and Clinton administration. And we also had something as simple as what's called tryout employment, whereas the Department of Corrections and the Workforce Investment Act actually covered the wages for the first six weeks to give that person a reentry chance for six weeks. And the employer also to measure whether or not they would continue with this employee. And that tagged in with targeted jobs tax credit and other programs. But I think what's really missing, and I miss it at almost all the meetings I attend, is we're short on workforce, we're short on workforce, well, we do have an eligible workforce here. So it, I think it just takes a little more investment. And so your program was in Iowa? Was what Yeah, that was, oh boy. It was <clears throat> a was while it? back, I might have had hair then. <laughs> <laughs> was but it, it was, federal? It, it was in the 90s, yeah, the transition in 90s and 2000. And it was the Workforce Investment Act, which was also known as the Job Training Partnership Act for over the years, but there was always a set program to help for offender reentry. Thank you very much. Thanks to all of you in the audience. Thanks to all of our legislators for your responses and a very informative session. I have a Anybody interested in the league? I have some brochures up here, which includes the membership card. So stop by to my desk and pick up one. Uh, thanks to all of you who are watching on uh, streaming on Facebook. Thanks to the local television staff for recording the event and live, stream live streaming it on the league's webpage. Rebroadcasts of the forum will be run on Iowa City Television Channel 4 Coral Vision, uh, and uh, the North Liberty TV. See their respective websites for programming. Our third and final forum will take place at the Community Center in Hills, Iowa, on March 25th from 9.30 to 11.30 a.m. The focus will be environmental stewardship. Please join us, and thank you for coming out this morning. Sorry, if I can, there's one medical topic that didn't come up today that I really think is important just to get information out, which is, uh, and I should have raised this toward the beginning, I uh, kind of forgot that we wouldn't be doing closing comments. Um, continuous coverage for Medicaid or Medicare, uh, so yeah, Medicaid has been required uh, federally through the pandemic and will be ending on April 1st, which means a lot of folks are gonna suddenly find out that they're gonna be disenrolled from Medicaid because during the course of the pandemic, something might have changed about their eligibility. 
There is information from Iowa HHS to help people prepare for that. And I will, um, if you want to check my Facebook page, I will go ahead and um, post a link to where folks can go to get information to prepare themselves for that transition.